0: Hi, Jay here. This is For the Record, program number 1195. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, part two. This is being recorded on July 30th of the year 2021. Before we jump back in to... Uh, another program in what is going to be a long series of broadcasts. Uh, let me remind you of three links at the top of each program description and at the top of each Food for Thought post. One of those links, if you click on, will enable you to subscribe to the comments that are made, most of them by our expert contributing editor, Tera although not all of them. There are There is much too much going on <clears throat> for me to possibly discuss this in a one hour roughly weekly program so again one of the links will enable you to subscribe to the uh, comments that are made most of them by terrafractal the other another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being uh, offered by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasting is the best way to consume the program for you, then there is a link to click on to subscribe to the WFMU podcast of For the Record. And the last of those links will enable you to uh, obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive, with all of my life's work available on it, through, for the record, 1156. And I can't recommend strongly enough that people do that. Uh, we're going to jump right back in where we left off. Uh, we are talking about the Seagraves, Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, two brilliant authors, sadly no longer with us. And they... Uh, well, well, Sterling Seagrave wrote and Peggy Seagrave greatly assisted with the writing of the Sung Dynasty, that's capital S-O-O-N-G Dynasty, published in hardcover by Harper and Rowe and copyright 1985. Uh, it was in connection with this book that the first of many death threats uh, and really attempts on the life of Sterling and Peggy Seagrave were initiated uh, in response to the HIT team, which was being assembled in Taiwan at that time <clears throat> under the... Stewardship of the Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek. He was dead at this point, but uh, at this point in time, but his Kuomintang still ruled uh, Taiwan and did so with an iron hand. And in Gold Warriors, uh, the Seagraves write about the threats that they experienced, including the threat that they got in connection with a book that will be a mainstay for this program, namely the Sung Dynasty. In Gold Warriors, they write, Many people told us this book was historically important and must be published, then warned us that if it were published, We would be murdered. An Australian economist who read it said, quote, I hope they let you you live, unquote. He did not have to explain who they, unquote, were. Japan's looting of Asia, by the way, including China, we'll be talking about gold warriors later on in the program. Japan's looting of Asia and the hiding of this war gold in American banks is closely linked to the issue of Holocaust gold hidden in Swiss banks. And then he talks about Jean Ziegler and Christoph Miley, who uh, helped to expose that. Skipping down. We have been threatened with murder before. When we published The Song Dynasty, again, a book that we will be relying on uh, to a great extent in this series. When we published The Song Dynasty, we were warned by a senior CIA official that a hit team was being assembled in Taiwan to come murder us. He said, quote, "'I would take this very seriously if I were you. "'We vanished for a year to an island off the coast of British Columbia. "'While we were gone, a Taiwanese hit team arrived in San Francisco,' and shot the Chinese American journalist, shot dead the Chinese American journalist, Henry Liu. One more time. While we were gone, a Taiwan hit team arrived in San Francisco, and shot dead the Chinese American journalist, Henry Liu. As we'll see in a minute, uh, they disappeared and lived on a sailboat for many years to stay ahead of their pursuers. Uh, when they ultimately settled in southern France, uh, the Sterling Seagrave narrowly escaped a serious attempt on his life. We'll talk about that later. When we published the Marcos dynasty, we expected trouble from the Marcos family and its cronies, but instead we were harassed by Washington. Others have investigated Marcos, but we were the first to show how the U.S. government was secretly involved with Marcos gold deals. We came under attack from the U.S. Treasury Department and its Internal Revenue Service, whose agents made threatening midnight phone calls to our elderly parents. Arriving in New York for an author tour, one of us was intercepted at JFK Airport, passport seized, and held incommunicado for three hours. Eventually, the passport was returned without a word of explanation. When we ran Freedom of Information Act queries to see what was behind it, we were grudgingly sent a copy of a telex message on which every word was blacked out, including the date. The justification given for this censorship was the need to protect government sources, which are above the law. During one harassing phone call from a U.S. Treasury agent, he said he was sitting in his office watching an interview we had done for a Japanese TV network, an interview broadcast only in Japanese, which we had never seen. After publishing The Yamato Dynasty, which briefly mentioned the discovery that is the basis for gold warriors, our phones and email were tapped. We know this, because when one of us was in a European clinic briefly for a medical procedure, the head nurse reported that, quote, someone posing as your American doctor, unquote, had been on the phone asking questions. When a brief extract of Gold Warriors was published in the South China Morning Post in August of 2001, several phone calls from the editors were cut off suddenly. Emails from the newspaper took 72 hours to reach us, while copies sent to an associate nearby arrived instantly. In recent months, we began to receive veiled death threats. What have we done to provoke murder? To borrow a phrase from Jean Ziegler, we are combating official amnesia, unquote. We live in dangerous times like Germany in the 1930s, when anyone who makes inconvenient disclosures about hidden assets can be branded a, quote, terrorist, unquote, or a, quote, traitor, unquote. Despite the best efforts of the American and Japanese governments to destroy, withhold, or lose documentation related to Golden Lily, we have accumulated thousands of documents, conducted thousands of hours of interviews, and we make all of these available to readers of this book on two compact discs available from our website, by the way, they are no longer, that website is no longer online as we looked at in For the Record 1106. Both of the Sigriers are deceased at uh, the present time. We encourage others with knowledge of these events to come forward. When the top is corrupt, the truth will not come from the top. It will emerge in bits and pieces from people like Jean Ziegler and Christoph Miley, who decided they had to, quote, do something, unquote. As a precaution, should anything odd happen, we have arranged for this book and all its documentation to be put up on the internet at a number of sites. If we are murdered, readers will have no difficulty figuring out who they, unquote, are. And in an obituary on the Verso Books, Dot .com, talking with, uh, recounting, uh, his experiences. Um, after the publication of the Spanish, uh, version of, of the Spanish language edition of Gold Warriors in Spain, uh, Sterling Seagrave narrowly escaped a serious attempt on his life. He was living in southern France at the time. And as he mentioned, he and Peggy had been living on a sailboat that he built himself for many years to stay ahead of their pursuers. And uh, it was that uh, period on the sailboat uh, that was begun when the senior CIA official alerted the Seagraves that the hit team was being assembled in Taiwan to come and kill them. From the Sterling Seagrave Obituary on VersoBooks.com. A hired thug tried to murder me on the serpentine road leading up to our isolated house on the ridge overlooking Beaumont-sur-Mer and merely succeeded. We've had several serious death threats because of our books. The road was very narrow in places with tarmac barely the width of my tires. The road was very narrow in places with tarmac barely the width of my tires. At 10 p.m. Christmas night in 2011, after visiting Peggy at a clinic in Perpignan, as I turned the final hairpin, I clearly saw a guy sitting on a cement-block path leading up to a shed for the uphill vineyard. He was obviously waiting for me, because we were the only people living up there on that mountain shoulder. He jumped up, raised a long pole, and unfurled a black Fabric that totally blocked the narrowest turn ahead of me. I tried the sword to avoid him, and, not knowing whether he also had a gun, my right front drive wheel went off the tarmac and lost traction in the rubble. The car peered and then plunged down to a steep vineyard on my right, rolling and bouncing front and rear a hundred meters into a ravine where it finally came to rest against a tree. Thanks to my seatbelt and airbag, I survived. I don't know how many concussions I got on the way down, but I managed to squeeze out the driver's door and fell onto the rubble. I got up on my left hand and knees, but my right shoulder caved in. It turned out later that I had fractured my right shoulder and all the ligaments had torn loose. I passed out and remained unconscious for 14 hours. After 12 hours, a vigneron driving up the next morning saw my wrecked car and body. He called the gendarmerie on his portable, and I was hoisted out unconscious by a chopper and flown to an old Victorian-era hospital in Perpignan, where they did nothing but keep me doped up on morphine for two weeks. No x-rays or serious medical care. Finally, friends in Bonneuse got me and Peggy transferred to a clinic on the beach there where Peggy and I shared a room while we both recovered. I got my right shoulder ligaments fixed by an excellent surgeon in Perpignan. Peggy did not know it then, but she had an early stage of cancer. I still have a hairline fracture in my right shoulder. I attribute the event staying too long in one place so the spooks eventually tracked me down. We had been living for years on a sailboat moving from Holland to Britain to Portugal to Spain and finally to France where we found in Capalonia an ideal vehicle, an ideal village, excuse me, at the Mediterranean end of the Pyrenees. In retrospect, I'm sorry I moved, agreed to move ashore for Peggy's sake and sold the beautiful 43-foot boat I had built from a bare Hull. It was very comfortable, but Peggy wanted the house. We never did find the right house in bonius B-A-N-Y-U-L-S, so we spent 18 years destroying a 13th century Templar ruin on the shoulder of the mountain. Made me an easy target. Definitely a bad decision. I think it was the Spanish edition of Gold Warriors that made me the easy target. And again, when he moved on the sailboat, and it was after he uh, left that he experienced that uh, hair-raising attempt on his life where the guy was waiting for him and draped a uh, black cloth across the narrow roadway so that he couldn't see where he was going, and he was almost killed uh, They began living on that sailboat when they got the the warning from the senior CIA official that a hit team was being assembled in Taiwan. Again, at that point in time, under the uh, stewardship of the Kuomintang, although Chiang Kai-shek and and, and Madam Chiang at that point had both passed away. Anyway, uh, Chiang Kai-shek was dead. I think Madam Chiang Kai-shek had passed away at that point, too. But in any event, the Kuomintang was still very much in charge of Taiwan, and they dispatched a hit team to kill Sterling Seagrave and Peggy Seagrave because of the book The Sun Dynasty, and we will be relying on that to an enormous extent in this series. And I'll reread... uh, the Seagraves account uh, at the end of this long series as well. Again, they have experienced an awful lot of adversity in connection with the uh, well, the, the telling of truth frankly, and uh, a very important truth it is. Uh, what we're going to do next is to uh, relate, uh, again, a really important aspect of the history of modern China. And that is uh, the impact on the Chinese of the uh, opium wars, and there were two of them in the 19th century. Uh, We're going to uh, move on Wikipedia for some of this. Uh, Even the Wikipedia is, frankly, distorted in this regard. Uh, we will rely on that account, but it's worth noting that not only the sensitivity of China to the destabilization effort in Hong Kong traces back to the Opium Wars because it was, as a result of the naval military superiority of the British Empire, that uh, China was easily subdued in both opium wars. It's not only uh, foisted the opium trade onto China, it was through that gunboat diplomacy uh, that uh, Great Britain got Hong Kong as a colony. And indeed, I think their uh, defensive... Maritime uh, strategic position uh, can be seen as a reactionary with a small r, to reactionary element or a reaction to their experience in not only the Opium Wars but in the Sino-Japanese War and World War II, in which the superior British and later the Japanese naval uh, superiority led to the not only the tremendous. Suffering and loss of life by Chinese in terms of uh, the ravages of the opium trade, which was forced on China by the opium wars, but also the destruction that was visited on China by the Japanese, and ultimately the looting of China under the Golden Lily program. We went into that in For the Record programs 1107 and 1108 in part, and we will review that later on in our series. However, key elements of the opium wars on the strategic and historical thinking and political thinking of China one the decisive role of European and American military domination and exploitation of China. And again, the opium wars were a key element in that. The role of the narcotics, Traffic and the erosion of Chinese society in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Again, it was opium that uh, led to. The, well, basically, it was the Opium Wars, two of them, that led to the introduction of opium into China. Uh, the Opium Wars were when the 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 phrase. Well, the term gunboat diplomacy, uh, was coined during the Opium Wars when again, uh, British naval superiority and naval gunnery led to easy victories over the Chinese. And that was where, China, where Hong Kong was expropriated, was appropriated by the, by the British as a colony, expanded during the Second uh, Opium War. Ultimately, opium was made legal in connection uh, with the opium wars and the coolie trade, the exportation of cheap Chinese labor to other countries, including and especially the U.S., was yet another outgrowth of the opium war. And again, the gunboat diplomacy was fundamental to the British acquisition of Hong Kong. I think, as I've said, it was the... uh, maritime military-slash-naval superiority of first the British and then the Japanese that has in many ways informed contemporary Chinese strategic orientation. Uh, They are very much concerned, as one can well understand, with the military safety of their ports, territorial waters, adjacent seas and oceans, shipping lanes, and merchant marine traffic. And again, I think that is in many ways a reaction to what they experienced not only in the opium wars, but in the sino japanese War and World War II. Another outgrowth of the Second Opium War was the, quote, freedom of religion, the introduction of freedom of religion, unquote, into China. One of the effects of that was to uh, opened up China to large numbers of, we- of Western missionaries, American missionaries in particular, and it was American missionaries who had much to do with shaping the positions of the U.S. toward China. Uh, Henry Luce, the publishing giant, was himself the child of American missionaries in China, and much of his outlook on China uh, stemmed from the experiences of his parents and Henry Luce himself, who spent part of his youth growing up in China. I don't think that it would be unfair to describe the position of the U.S. toward China as the missionary position, uh, pun intended. Uh, we have never viewed China as a, an equal, and The lionization, the elevation of not only Chiang Kai-shek, but Madame Chiang Kai-shek into uh, almost semi-deity status by Henry Luce and others uh, stems from their conversion, well, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's conversion to Christianity, along with the conversion of Du Yu Sheng, and their consequent lionization by Henry Luce. One of the things that stemmed from the influx of western missionaries u s in particular into China was a practice that the missionaries engaged in of using morphine to cure the large numbers of Chinese opium addicts that of course got them hooked on opium on morphine, and it was such a prevalent practice that the Chinese actually referred to morphine as Jesus opium, as we looked at in full the Record Program number 24, or actually, um, Anti-Fascist Archives, Program Number 24. Uh, the Bayer Company, later a key element of IG Farben, developed heroin as a cure for morphine addiction, also as a uh, cough suppressant, especially effective in young children, which I don't doubt it was. Uh, and that, again, was used to treat morphine addiction and the U.S. missionaries uh, used morphine to treat opium addiction. I pr- again, a practice so prevalent, it was referred to uh, morphine, that is, as Jesus opium. Another thing, by the way, that we looked at in, a- in uh, AFA program number 24 was the development by the Bayer Company and IG Farben of a synthetic morphine in the run-up to World War II because they were afraid that the British naval blockade would block them from importing enough opium to treat their casualties in the war that was coming. After the war, they had this wonderful, Ferbin that is, had this wonderful synthetic morphine, but it had been named after Adolf Hitler. It was called Dolophine, D-O-L-O-P-H-I-N-E, in honor of and named after Adolf Hitler. Well, they had this wonderful product, this wonderful synthetic morphine, but they couldn't market it because it was uh, named after Adolf Hitler. So they changed the name and they called it, methadone. And now methadone, originally dolophine is used to treat heroin addiction. Heroin was developed by Bayer Company to treat morphine addiction. Morphine was used by the U.S. missionaries to treat opium addiction. Again, a practice so common that the Chinese referred to morphine as Jesus opium. After China was jackhammered open by the British naval superiority manifest in the two opium wars, uh, the opium trade was legalized in China and not only ravaged the Chinese people, but it became the foundation for the coalescence and ascent of Shanghai's Green Gang and Tu Yui Shang, or Big Eared Two, as he was nobody he had very prominent ears. Uh, Kuomintang's, uh, the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek were basically dominated by the Green Gang and Big Eared too. And the fundamental reliance of Chiang's government on the narcotics trade was, again, another uh, outgrowth of the opium trade in China. And ultimately, uh, the uh, Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang was a key dealer of narcotics to the U.S. as well. Another thing worth noting is the symbol of the Sung family, for whom the Sung dynasty is named, Im Shang Kai Kuomintang. The aforementioned T.V. Sung uh, was Chang's finance minister uh, at various times. Uh, was one of the key business people in Chang's administration. Also heavily involved with the Green Gang, heavily involved in the exprop- illegal expropriation of hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. lend-lease aid. And that was hundreds of millions of nineteen forty dollars into his private coffers. At one point, T.V. Sung was the richest. Man in the world, and the major Stockholder in General Motors and uh, Dupont. Uh, two of his sisters: one of them Mei Ling married Generalissimo Chiang Kai Shek and became um, uh, what uh, Henry Lucifer referred as Missimo Chiang Kai Shek. The, the Generalissimo and the Missimo, and the another sister A Ling. Song. Married H.H. H. Kung, a key finance minister of the Kuomintang as well, and she was in many ways like a Lucretia Borgia, a truly Machiavellian, very effective and altogether lethally sinister individual. She was married to H.H. H. Kung, another luminary of the Kuomintang and also subservient to the Green Gang. Several of TV's brothers also shared in the Slicing the Chinese Pie, under. Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, again, we've mentioned the pivotal role of American publishing giant Henry we will come into this in a big way. His missionary background on China informed and animated his aberration of both Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Mei-Ling may, um, Song the role of the loose publishing empire and the enormous financial influence of the corrupt Song family helped to spawn the the China lobby. And even... T.B. Sung himself noted that the unwillingness of Chiang Kai-shek to fight the Japanese, he actually collaborated with the Japanese to an enormous extent, while husbanding his military resources to fight the Chinese communists, ultimately drove the Chinese people into the arms of the Chinese Communist Party. So, in a way, the answer... To the battle cry of uh, the China lobby and the McCarthyite forces of the late 1940s and 1950s as to, quote, who lost China, unquote? Well, it was Chiang Kai-shek and the Sungs and the forces that we will be talking about, uh, in this series. And again, the Opium Wars themselves had much to do with either Directly shaping or setting the foundation for the key elements of Chinese history that I have spoken about now. Uh, from the slanted Wikipedia entries about the Opium Wars, uh, from the Wikipedia dot com, the Opium Wars, the Opium Wars were two wars waged between the Qing Dynasty, also known as the Manchu Dynasty, and Western powers in the mid. 19th century. The first opium war fought in 1839 to 1842 between King China and Great Britain was triggered by the dynasty's campaign against the British merchants who sold opium in China. The second opium war was fought between the king and Britain and France in 1856 and 1860. In each war, the European forces' modern military technology led to easy victory over the king forces, with the consequences that the government was compelled to grant favorable tariffs, trade concessions, reparations, and territory to the Europeans. And trade concessions, basically, it was the opium trade. Uh, The opium wars are so named because they, again, jackhammered open China, and not only uh, first... Uh, safeguarded the illegal importation of opium from India to China to help correct a uh, uh, trade surplus uh, that had uh, accumulated uh, from vis-a-vis China and Europe. The British East India Company was uh, central to that. Ultimately, the opium trade was made legal as a result of a treaty that ended the Second Opium War. And uh, the first opium war from the the Wikipedia entry. The immediate issue was Chinese official seizure of opium stocks at Canton to stop the banned opium trade and threatening the death penalty for future offenders. The British government insisted on the principles of free trade, they say for the opium trade and a number of other things. It is... uh, a series of rhetorical bromides, even in the Wikipedia article, that are really uh, quite loaded, I think. To, to, who would who be against free trade? What they mean here is the opium trade. Skipping down. In the 18th century, the demand for Chinese luxury goods, particularly silk, porcelain, and tea, created a trade imbalance between China and Britain. European silver flowed into China through the Canton system, which confined incoming foreign trade to the southern port city of Canton. To counter this imbalance, the British East India Company began to grow opium in Bengal and allowed private British merchants to sell opium to Chinese smugglers for illegal sale in China. The influx of narcotics reversed the Chinese trade surplus, drained the economy of silver, and increased the number of opium addicts inside the country, outcomes that seriously worried Chinese officials. In 1839, the Daoguang Emperor, rejecting proposals to legalize and tax opium, appointed Viceroy Lin Zexu, capital L-I-N, capital Z-E-X-U to go to Canton and halt the opium trade completely. Lin wrote an open letter to Queen Victoria which she never saw, appealing to her moral responsibility to stop the opium trade. Lin then resorted to using force in the merchants on the Western merchant's enclave. He confiscated all supplies and ordered a blockade of foreign ships on the Pearl River. Lin also confiscated and destroyed a significant quantity of European opium. The British government responded by dispatching a military force to China, and in the ensuing conflict, the Royal Navy used its naval and gunnery power to inflict a series of decisive defeats on the Chinese Empire, a tactic later referred to as the gunboat diplomacy. In 1842, the Qing Dynasty was forced to sign the Treaty of Nanking, the first of what the Chinese later call the Unequal Treaties which granted indemnity and extraterritoriality to British subjects in China, uh, ceded Hong Kong to the British Empire, opened five treaty ports, and still, however, uh, and by the way, the, the British, uh, the Chinese, I should say, were forced to compensate the British for the, for the uh, confiscation of illegal opium. In another entry from Wikipedia, the first opium war, In compensation for the opium destroyed by Commissioner Lin, British traders demanded compensation from their home government. This put pressure on India from China as the overwhelming demand for opium was screaming as the fixed supply simply no longer reached demands. However, British authorities believed that the Chinese were responsible for payment and sent expeditionary forces from India, which ravaged the Chinese coast in a series of battles and dictated the terms of settlement. China's crackdown on outlawing the use of opium while Britain advocated for free trade as they were the source of trading opium into China. Again, the bromide while the British advocated free trade sounds wonderful, doesn't it? What that meant is this. China's crackdown on outlawing the use of opium, while Britain advocated for free trade as they were the source of trading opium into China. The 1842 Treaty of Nanking not only opened the way for further opium trade, but ceded the territory of Hong Kong, unilaterally fixed Chinese tariffs at a low rate, gave Britain most favored nation status, and permitted them diplomatic representation. Three million dollars in compensation for the debts that the Hong merchants in Canton owed British merchants for the destroyed opium was also to be paid under Article 5. So part of the treaty that ended the first opium war, uh, basically the British not only got Hong Kong, that's when Hong Kong became a British uh, colony, but they were forced to, the Chinese that is, forced to lay off confiscating the Opium that Britain was importing from India and it was devastating Chinese society and they had to pay the British for the opium that they had confiscated. And from the Wikipedia entry on the Second Opium War. Despite the new ports available for trade under the Treaty of Nanking, by 1854 Britain's imports from China had reached nine times their exports to the country. One more time. Despite the new ports available for trade under the Treaty of Nanking, by 1854, Britain's imports from China had reached nine times their exports to the country. At the same time, British imperial finances came under further pressure from the expense of administering the burgeoning colonies of Hong Kong and Singapore in addition to India. India. Only the latter's opium could balance the deficit. Along with various complaints about the treatment of British merchants in Chinese ports and the King government's refusal to accept further foreign ambassadors, the relatively minor arrow incident provided the pretext the British needed to once more resort to military force to ensure the opium kept flowing. And note that again, the trade imbalance between uh, China and Britain and uh, the reaction that the British uh, generated by importing tremendous amounts of opium from India, which uh, reversed that and uh, drained China of silver. Uh, it was the opium that was the key element to British, quote, free trade, unquote, and the tr- treaty that ended The Second Opium War was the Treaty of Tianjin. Among the things that it did, it ceded the number one district of Kowloon and south of the present day Boundary Street to Britain. That is in again Hong Kong. Freedom of religion established in China, that permitted uh, the influx of Western mercenaries. uh, Actually, Western missionaries of Freudian slip, and again, I think in many ways the position certainly of the U.S. toward China under Chiang Kai-shek, and I think in many ways today could be said to B the missionary position, pun intended. Uh, British ships were then allowed to carry indentured Chinese to the Americans. It, the Qing dynasty had forbidden Chinese to emigrate abroad. This was reversed by the Treaty of Beijing that ended the Second Opium War, and the brutal conditions endured by Chinese workers in the U.S. that we read in our last program from the Sung dynasty was one of the results of that. And last, but certainly not least, one of the outgrowths of the second treaty, of uh, the treaty, the convention of Beijing, which ended the second opium war, the opium was legalization of the opium trade. And the, well, probably the, the most, one of the most eloquent and frankly accurate assessments of the British moral position vis-à-vis the opium wars. And those are sort of things that have had a tremendous effect on China to this day. Uh, the British Prime Minister, William Gladstone, intoned as follows, again from the, e- the Wikipedia entry, The opium trade endured, incurred intense enmity from the later British Prime Minister, William Ewert, E.W.A.R.T. Gladstone. As a member of parliament, Gladstone called it, quote, most infamous and atrocious, unquote, referring to the opium trade between China and British India in particular. Gladstone was fiercely against both of the opium wars and was ardently opposed to the British trade in opium to China and denounced British violence against the Chinese. Gladstone lambasted the Opium Wars as, quote, Palmerston's Opium War and said that he felt, quote, in dread of the judgments of God upon England for our national iniquity towards China in May of 1840. A famous speech made by Gladstone in Parliament against the first Opium War Uh, Basically, in that, Gladstone, uh, a famous speech was made by Gladstone in Parliament against the First Opium War. Gladstone criticized it as, quote, a war more unjust in its origin, a war more calculated in its progress to cover this country with permanent disgrace. And again, it did many things. Part of the sensitivity of the Chinese, of the destabilization effort in Hong Kong, was because Hong Kong became a British colony as a result of the gunboat diplomacy of the Opium Wars, and of uh, the Opium Wars, uh, basically introduced opium into China. It was initially illegal when the Qing Dynasty uh, moved against that. Uh, The British then engaged in gunboat diplomacy to safeguard the then illegal trade. They got Hong Kong in the first Opium War settlement. Then in the Second War, uh, they not only opened up China to missionaries, they not only uh, won the... the emigration of Chinese quote, coolie unquote, labor to the Americas, but they also uh, forced the legalization of the opium trade. And the opium trade, uh, it would be impossible to exaggerate the influence of that on contemporary China. Uh, and, And not just on China per se, but on the thinking of Chinese. The here in the South Bay Area, in the uh, South San Francisco Bay Area, there was a dust-up a couple of years ago when the city of Mountain View was going to open some cannabis dispensaries in the city proper, and the Chinese-American residents of Mountain View were bitterly opposed to that because the historical memory of government drug dealing was very keen and very bitter to them, so they mounted a fierce opposition to that. That is, again, part of the legacy of the Opium Wars and government drug trafficking that was the foundation of the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek. Very recently, uh, there was the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in Shanghai in 1921. Uh, the fledgling Communist Party was eventually massacred, almost wiped out, by the Green Gang uh, of Shanghai and Chu Yu uh the Doctrineur Mer- anti-communism of not only the Green Gang, but the Kuomintang, which was essentially a political front for the Green Gang, was one of the things that endeared Chiang Kai-shek to the U.S. and to Henry Luce in particular. And referring to surveillance of the fledgling meeting of the Chinese Communist Party and the way in which... The opium trade became the foundation of the Green Gang and a remarkable Chinese organized crime figure named Tu yu Sheng, or sometimes Du yu uh spelled with a B U uh, also commonly known as Big-eared Tu because of his enormous ears. Reading now from the Sung Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave, uh, again after they published the book a hit team was dispatched from Taiwan to kill them. The Seagree is right about the Green Gang and its, uh, uh, hard, basically its uh, reorganization of the Chinese opium trade into a cartel, which was the foundation of their power. If the founders of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, had had any idea what was going to befall them, they would have been more alarmed by the mysterious figure watching the pink schoolhouse on Joyful Undertaking Street. The spy was not there merely for the French shiote, but for another of pockmarked Wang's organizations, the Green Gang, a new gangster syndicate that would soon be the most militant anti-communist force in China. Its leader was Chu Yu Sheng. Chu was that exotic creature, the pure criminal mastermind. He was born into desperate poverty in 1888 across the river from Shanghai in a ramshackle village called Cao Chao in Putong District, the most squalid slum in China. His father was a coolie in a grain shop. When his parents died, the boy became dependent upon his mother's brother who treated him brutally. By the time Tu reached his teens, he was a sinewy and murderous youth with narrow shoulders, unusually long arms, large yellow teeth, and the eyes of a successful rat. He decided to pur- pursue a career pushing opium across the river in Shanghai. At first, he stayed alive by working as a helper to a fruit vendor, selling pears on the waterfront of the French concession, and doing homicidal favors for waterfront hooligans. Two outstanding features were a big shaved head and ears that stood out like tree mushrooms. His face was lumpy and irregular like a sack of potatoes, the result of savage childhood beatings. His lips were stretched taut over his protuberant teeth in a perpetual smirk, and his left eyelid drooped in a permanent wink, giving him a lascivious air. There was always fresh gravy on his gown. He fit in perfectly with the Shanghai waterfront milieu. Around him were loitering Tufts and pandering riffraff, low-end members of the famous Red Gang. Two fell in with them, and before he was 15, he became a member of the gang. His closest pals were runners for the big man himself, Puck Wang. Two hung around the kitchen at Lang's heavily guarded house and eventually made the acquaintance of the great detective's well-thumped mistress. Through her, he met the boss and was recognized as a valuable recruit, a young man of quick wits. Two handled of his assignments with energy and resourcefulness. He made friends everywhere by his easy manner, his generosity, and his willingness to... One more time, he made friends everywhere by his easy manner, his generosity, and his genuine willingness to help. There was nothing he would rather do than aid a downtrodden street vendor by terrorizing the pawnbroker to whom the vendor was in debt. Bigger 2 was especially good at handling opium, which was Parkmark Wang's main source of revenue. Again, Parkmark Wang, a detective with the French Sûreté and the French Concession, which the French won from the Second Opium War, and he also was head of the Red Gang and became one of the key elements of the Green Gang once again. Bigger 2 was especially good at handling opium, which was pockmarked Wang's main source of revenue. And again, that became legal as a result of the Second Opium War and the wholesale, large-scale introduction of opium into China was won by the gunboat diplomacy exercised by Britain in the Opium Wars, one another of the outcasts of so that was the ceding of Hong Kong as a British colony. One more time. One day, Tu proposed that the rival gangs join in a cartel to move the opium to market and then split the take. This would put them in control of most of the opium in China. They could dictate the price. Profits would rise dramatically. Wang let Tu work out the details which meant negotiating with some gang leaders and assassinating some others. The leader of the Green Gang resisted and was then disposed of. Big Eared 2 became the new boss of the Green Gang. The head of the Blue Gang, whose name was Chang Shaolin, wisely decided to cooperate, and a troika was formed of the three gang leaders. Again, uh, Chu Yue Xing, uh, Wang, and uh, Chang Shaolin of the Blue Gang. Together, they ruled the Shanghai Underworld, the two adjacent provinces of Chekiang and Kangsu, and the entire Yangtze Valley, far into the poppy-growing regions of China's interior. In the international settlement, bootleg opium had always been controlled by the Chu Chao Three Harmonies triad, headed for many years by the Cantonese Wang Sui. Big Year, too, quote, persuaded, unquote, Wang to join the cartel as well. This extended Tu's leverage into the international settlement where he gradually subverted and took over the Three Harmonies Triad, absorbing it into the Green Gang. Eventually, the Green Gang completely displaced all other triads within its territory except the deeply embedded Peasant League, the Society of Elbers and Brothers in the countryside. Tu's worth increased fabulously. At one time, conservatively estimated at over $40 million American dollars. And again, this is in the 1920s. Never tight with funds, he gave money freely to friends, and if strangers offered him a plausible cause, he would give money to them as well. There were many legends about how Big too helped widows, rescued men who had lost everything, and supported orphans. He also have a bottomless talent for inducing fear. People have a way of doing what two ask them to do. He never tried to take the place of his patron, but pockmarked Wang. The, the Red Gang continued to exist as an exclusive social club for patriotic old revolutionaries while criminal operations became the province of the Green Gang from 1910 on. Potmark Wang remained the head of the Troika, but Big Ear, too, was the director of operations and the puppet master of all of Shanghai. When he pulled the strings, the city danced to his tune. At his disposal were a large number of the urban workers, from longshoremen and street coolies to postal clerks and bank tellers. The Postal, clerks, the postal Employees Guild allowed him to read people's mail— ever possible, too, took over the indirect control of companies by using extortion and terror to bully the boards of directors into submission. Meanwhile, his men organized the employers of these same companies into guilds. It was carefully done, for the most part, to maintain an illusion of independence. But both the guilds and the corporate management were powerless until Big too, jerked the strings. This was why, in the summer of 1921, when the 13 Marxist delegates gathered in the Pink Brick Girls' School on Joyful Undertaking Street to et- establish the Chinese Communist Party, there was a suspicious stranger lurking outside. The Snoop had been sent by Pockmark Wang and Big Eared too, to keep an eye on this odd collection of Chinese intellectuals and their rather more dangerous Russian friends. After what had happened in Russia, the presence of Bolshevik agents and organizers in China was a direct challenge to the growing domination of the Green Gang. As one might expect, Bigard too, had some very interesting friends. One of the few he evidently considered his equal in guile and cunning, beginning again, of the few that he evidently considered his equal in guile and cunning, there was a woman... One with a remarkable gift for high finance and backroom intrigue. Her name was A-Ling Sung, now known to strangers as Madam Kung, and the sister of Mei-Ling Sung, who married Chiang Kai-shek, and also of T.V. Sung, who was at one point the richest man in the world, and along with the H. H Kung, uh, two of the, perhaps the most important financial figure in Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, China. On many Sundays, after A. Ling, again married to, uh, Madame, uh married to H. 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 Kung, on many Sundays, after A. Ling had been to the young J. Allen Methodist Church, the gang leader, Chu Yue Sheng, arrived at her home on the route to Sayez for a quiet conversation while his bodyguards kept vigil on all sides. Their children grew up together. This curious gathering on the Kung Long combined the resources of the Kung banking empire, the leverage of the Sung family, and the mammoth clout of the Green Gang. They joined forces to make a series of stunning investments and takeovers during the years from 1916 to 1940. The Christian image of the Sung clan with its collegiate veneer was magic with foreigners, and the dark participation of Big Year Two intimidated any Chinese who might otherwise be stubborn. If the message was not clear, Big Eared 2 sent the offending party his usual warning, an ornate Chinese coffin. A positive change of heart could be expected momentarily. At the opposite end of the Shanghai social scale, Big Ear 2 enjoyed visiting the famous Blue Villa and cruising the other Green Gang brothels in the Blue Chamber District with a young, ill-tempered bravo by the name of Chiang Kai-shek. More about Chiang Kai-shek in our next program. Uh, This was how the opium trade, again, introduced really into China when legalized as a result of the opium wars led to the uh, ascent of the Green Gang when they made that their cartel and that became the foundation of their power. Ultimately, Chiang Kai-shek, was able, and the Green Gang were able to stack the Chinese military academy at Wampo, that's a couple of W-H-A-N-P-O-A, with Green Gang cadets, and this gave the Green Gang complete control over the Chinese military. Returning to the Song Dynasty. On May third, nineteen 1924, Chiang was confirmed as commandant of Wampo Military Academy and as chief of staff of the nation's Kuomintang Army. The Russians, under orders from Borobin to risk nothing because of Chang kept their objections to themselves. By not blocking Chang's appointment to the coveted position, they committed a fatal blunder. By tradition, the Chinese owed absolute loyalty first to the family, second to non-blood relatives through marriage, and third to the student-teacher bond. This was a bond warlords made use of. Chang understood it perfectly. If he was the commandant of Wampo, every cadet was his student in the end. Borobin, again, a Russian advisor to the uh, uh, government of Sun Yat-sen, Borobin may have thought that Shang could be disposed of later. He could not have been further from the truth. The mistake may have occurred because Borobin had left Canton in March for talks with Russian diplomats in Beijing and was not minding the store skipping down. What Dr. son, that's Sun Yat-sen, and Borgin did not know and apparently never suspected was that a very large number of these candidates, that is for Wampo, came from the ranks of the Green Gang. The opportunity to stack the deck at Wampo was not to be missed. The actual recruiting was carried out by Chen Kofu, a nephew of the dead hero Chen Che-mi, who had been a major figure in the Green Gang. Since his assassination, his two nephews had taken his place in the gang's hierarchy and had been adopted by Chiang Kai-shek. In all, Chen Kuo-fu was credited with recruiting a total of 7,000 cadets for Wong Po drawn directly from the ranks of the Green Gang or indirectly through family membership or dependency. He accomplished this almost without leaving the French concession, obviously because he did not have to these cadets formed the backbone of Chiang's personal officer staff. Not even the Chinese Communist Party at that time was so well organized and so well positioned to influence the course of events. So again, the British introduced, through force of arms and gunboat diplomacy, opium. The booming opium trade then becomes the foundation for the Green Gang operations when uh, Piu Yu Sheng, uh, helps to put together a cartel that then spreads out to other criminal organizations and, and activities by Tu Yu Sheng, who hooks up with the Sung family. And one of his privileges was Chiang Kai shek. And it was Chiang Kai shek who presided over the Green Gang's domination of the Wampo Military Academy, which led to the Kai to the Kuomintang domination of The Chinese military, and a remarkable synthesis in which not just the Kuomintang and the Chinese government, but the Chinese military itself basically was a front for the Green Gang. However, that is all we have time for in this program. We will continue with this discussion in our next installment. This concludes for the record program number 1195, Chiang Kai-shek, The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang Part 2, being recorded on July 30th of 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.